0: And then success breeds success because if you can do this small little thing and you're feeling positive, well, then I'll try it. It feels like a safe environment, and then I'm successful at it. I mean, that's beautiful. Then I'm going to try more, and I'll write more. I think we help break this current stream of struggling writers that we have because all a struggling writer is is somebody who's afraid they're going to do it wrong. And when we open up the possibilities instead of – all the limitations, I think they become freer.
1: Welcome back to Chalk and Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs Accounting Book and 4th Grade Teacher. Before I get into today's amazing interview with authors and educational consultants Jeff Anderson and Whitney LaRocca, I want to announce that Sam, whose Twitter handle is literally smash, won a picture book critique from Erin Dealy. Congrats to Sam and many thanks to Erin for her generosity. Stenhouse Publishers are donating a copy of Patterns of Power or Patterns of Wonder to a lucky podcast listener. Stay tuned till the end of the podcast to find out how to win a copy of one of these fabulous books. This episode is all about community building and becoming successful writers. Jeff and Whitney talk about how their strengths complement one another, how focusing on student success breeds more student success, and the importance of getting the first draft on paper. Let's get started. Welcome, Whitney and Jeff. I am so excited to have you here today on Chalk and Ink. Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Well, thanks for having us, Kate. We're really glad to be here.
1: Yes, thank you so much. You are so welcome. So I was hoping we could get started uh, by having you both tell us who you are as writers and who you are as educators.
0: You go first, Whitney, since your name's first on the on the Patterns of Wonder book.
2: I'm the new one. Okay, awesome. I will go first for a change. <laughs> um, <laughs> my name's Whitney LaRocca. Um As an educator, I um, have over 20 years of experience. I have been a teacher. I've been um, a literacy coach and a consultant. I'm now a full-time consultant, and um, where I work with schools and districts. In just, um, literacy, all things literacy. And with patterns of power, we have a great reading, writing connection that we get to bring in with that work. Um, and as, uh, writer. Uh, as Jeff said, my name is first on Patterns of Wonder. Uh, I am the co-author of Patterns of Power, Patterns of Power Plus, and Patterns of Wonder, but with Patterns of Wonder for Emergent Writers, I got to take the lead on that. So I really um did a lot of writing uh, and really found myself as the writer. I found the writer inside of me through this work and really got to share uh, my true voice in in this work. So it was exciting. It was hard work, um, but it was heart work for sure. There's a lot of passion in that. And um, it, it was it was stressful at times to write it, but then a lot of fun. And I just hold it in my hands all the time now, <laughs> well, <laughs> whenever I'm home.
0: And, and I should say that one of the things, the, the book is really beautiful. And of course, we thank our editor, Terry Thompson at yes. Stenhouse Publishers. But um, Whitney was so organized and so good at getting these permissions so that there could be these full pictures that teachers could use right away in the classroom. And that's, I think, in some ways, like I'm telling Whitney what kind of writer she is, but <laughs> she's got that detail and that, and that work sense that you have to have. I've, I'm kind of floaty as a writer. I'm very, like, I'm excited about the idea of teaching grammar through a lens of, not right or wrong, but meaning and effect. And we love that message of the choices kids have. And conventions aren't a trap of right and wrong, but a, a vehicle of meaning and effect that I can use to read and write with to, and to gain meaning in my life and the world around me. And I'm really good at coming up with ideas, uh, but then they get out of control. And Whitney's really good at pulling back pulling back things and, and reminding me to work. That's when we worked on the first book, it was just, we sat beside each other and wrote the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was
2: really amazing to think about, go back to when we first worked on Patterns of Power together, because we didn't know each other. we would met each other once, twice. And <laughs> so when I showed up at his house to do this work, we just sat side by side and we found out very quickly that we complemented each other. Well, I was a very detail oriented and Jeff has all these amazing, brilliant ideas. I get to
0: do all the titles. Ways. I'm good with titles.
2: Yeah. <laughs> all the lessons start off with me title. Because I don't do that. I'm like, I can't think of a creative title. I'm just going to leave that one to Jeff. And,
0: and I think that that's one of those things that's really rare that when somebody else can pick up where you left off, yes. or when I'm having a seasonal imbalance, or Whitney's having a seasonal imbalance at home, and one of us can take over. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really nice. And then either she can do the training or I can do the training. And now we've kind of, we've just gotten in sync over the years of doing all these projects together and we're still doing more. Um, Absolutely. so as a writer, I probably would say I need support. <laughs> and
2: I think we all do. <laughs> yeah,
0: we all do. And for different reasons and different ways, but as a writer, that's, I'm a spewer. That's what we'll say. Mm-hmm. And a creator. <laughs> Um, uh, but, uh, and I like to zip things up and, um, uh, mm-hmm. ponder on quotes that have meaning for teachers. So that's the kind of writer we are. And I wrote, I did write that children's book. So I know that series, Zach Delacruz series, which was with Sterling Publishers. Um, and I'd be bad if I didn't see me and my big mouth. Uh, the first book, Just My Luck, the second book, and the third book was Upstaged, all Zach DelaCruz novels. I had so much fun doing that. But my goodness, it's so different than writing for teachers. Writing for teachers is just very different than kind of tracking a novel through the whole period. And you can see the kind of writer I am. It's good for the beginning part, but the getting it into a story arc and all that kind of stuff is, is tough to hold on to all that information in your head. So I was like, I had to use a lot more post-its when I wrote fiction. (laughs) Fiction causes post-its. They probably, I probably (laughs) spent more money in post-its than I got in royalties. (laughs) We'll just leave it at that.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to pick pick up on two items that you both talked about. First of all, I just want to say that, you know, Jeff, you're saying you ramble, but I one of the reasons why I love Patterns of Power is because it's succinct and to the point. And I really want to make sure that gets out there because I think a deficit of some programs for teachers is that they are very wordy. And the fact of the matter <laughs> is, is teachers are very busy people. And we don't have time to read 10 pages to get to a point that could have been made in one paragraph. And I think Patterns of Power is outstanding in that way here's what we're doing today, here's how you do it, do it. And I don't have to wade through 10 pages to figure out what it is that you're asking me to do. So I want to thank you both for creating a resource that's very uh, useful for teachers. It's not going to cause teachers extra amount of work. Well, thank you for that because that was our
2: goal when we sat down together um, to kind of think about how do we want pattern this, and we didn't even know it was called Patterns of Power at the time, right? How do we want this book to look? How do we want this invitations to look for? And and we both agreed it needs to be something that they can literally pick up and use. We don't, They don't need to do a lot of reading. Um, and that's the brilliance behind that Patterns of Power invitational process as well. Is It's a process. Um, so the lessons follow the same process all the way through. So you don't need a lot of instructional guidance in that point, right? We can have our power notes where we do some tips, some things to think about. Um, but if you know the process, then you can easily pick up and use it.
0: And we, but we, we did
2: want that to be short. We wanted it to be a resource that could be picked up and used. That's right away. in so fact, thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome.
0: That, that thread, it is, a, it is a, it's not necessarily a staff development book, really. It's a hybrid, it's mm-hmm. a resource book. It is. It's because, and the reason it's thick is because it has so many lessons in it, and the lessons are brief. But we give you like the first forty pages in both books. We start off the books with the uh, a little bit of theory why this works, but also walking you through narratively the process itself, Mm -hmm. which you can get that way, or you can listen to um, our podcast um, and listen that way. But somehow get that information so that then at point of use, you know, not flipping back to the appendix not doing any of that stuff. If, if there's a printout that you need or something you need to project, it's right next to the lesson so that you don't have to go looking for it. Um, we really thought intentionally about that because I remember, like you're saying, Kate, um, some of the early staff development books, which I loved and built me and I learned a lot about teaching from, you would have to like go in with like tweezers to try to extract what the lesson was and you had to rebuild it out of that and and teachers just don't have time to do that all the time. And and we wanted to be supportive, but not yet in a programmatic way. Yeah. We wanted this to be an interactive program. So so the, the 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 way in which conversation drives everything makes it all about the kids. So even though we give you these couple of pages of planning and these couple of pages of classroom supplements that you can use for every part of the lesson sets, those are there to cause conversation because we know the conversations the kids have in the classroom with that visual support are going to raise their conscious level of awareness of the moves writers make to create meaning both as a reader and a writer. So that's exciting to us that we get to kind of spur talk because that's, if we could call it like it's, it's, it could be patterns of conversation. It could be, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to be quiet. See, I told you I'm a spewer. (laughs) In talk and in writing. But in writing day, you can though. you can get you can pull it back.
1: <laughs> well I mean, I think part of the power of your book is the pattern in the book, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, another reason why it's easy to use, besides the fact that it's to the point, is that it's the same pattern every lesson. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you start with the invitation to notice or the invitation to wonder, depending on if you're using Mm -hmm. patterns of, you know, power or patterns of wonder. And you know each lesson is going to start with that lesson. And so, and like you said, you don't have to tweeze it out. It's all right there. So it's just so user-friendly.
0: I love that. It's not figure it out, it's tweeze it out.
1: It is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you just have it right there. It's done for you. So it's just, it's fantastic. I also want to talk about how you both talked about the power of writing together, you know, the power of partnership. And I think that Mm -hmm. too can be uh, very useful to talk about in classrooms because oftentimes, you know, we do have kids work in partners, but I think in the real world, sometimes kids don't see that a lot, right? They just see Mm -hmm. one name, you know, written by one person. And so Mm -hmm. I think you're also doing us a great service by showing Hey, look what happens when you work with someone, you know, the product that you're going to create is going to be more powerful than if you were just working by yourself. And I have to tag onto that too.
2: Yes, we work together, but our editor was heavily involved in this as well. And I, and I think, um, students don't have an understanding of what an editor does in the writing process as well. So the, even the authors that are writing on their own, their editor is their writing partner, right? And so we might not see that on the book cover, but that writer is definitely saying, Hey, you know, the editor is like, what do you think about this? And, you know, tell me more about this part. I'm a little confused here, which is what our writing partners and writing workshop do. That's the point of us to have these conversations and and get us to think more about the work that we're doing in our writing. So essentially, our writing partners are like our editors, you know, our, our project managers basically of getting us to think more about what we're doing. And I have to say, that's something that I really found with Patterns of Wonder is just how much I truly leaned on my editor to help me think through some things. Um, same with Jeff too, but it was like, oh, let's turn to Terry. Let's ask him, you know, what, what he's thinking about this part. So it'd be neat to bring that into um, conversations with students as well as to what those writing partners really do. You know, it's your thinking partner. It's your partner to really um, get you to think more about the work that you're doing. That's and, so I,
0: true. and I know this whole thing with writer's workshop is it's supposed to be not in an order and be recursive and all that. And just that happens with the editing process as well. That's one of the reasons we made it into a process. Cause like, how do you, cause basically we were like, edit your paper, you right, know, right. here's a, here's a square <laughs> right. that says punctuation next to it and read your punctuation and check it. That's how we taught editing in some places. And that was trying to be authentic. Right. Um. But, but what happens is, if you don't know what it's supposed to be in the first place, you you can't correct it and you just misread mm-hmm. what you've written and intentionally sometimes. I mean, sometimes you catch things. And of course, that's wonderful, but you really have to understand what the patterns of power are, what they're really supposed to look like. And that's where the kind of groundbreaking work came from this, is this idea of we look at something that's beautiful, mm-hmm. that's authentic, that's got voice, that's got interest. And we ask, how'd that writer do that? How did that writer do that? And we go into an inquiry method. And, and it's just as exciting because like when we're writing them and trying them out in classrooms, we, it's just it's wonderful to see it work. And when teachers write to us and say, oh, my God, it's like they pay attention and they want to do grammar and they get excited. And at this they're reading their books and they're coming up to me and saying, miss, miss, I found a, I found a, a Woobis. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> that was not what grammar was doing in my classroom when I started teaching in 1989. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that.
1: No. I mean and it's really powerful what patterns of power does and I think what you just said Jeff is what happens in writers workshop why it doesn't work to say look for punctuation is I think the student gets overwhelmed because mm-hmm. by the time they get to the editing point you know they've written a lot you know if if it's a narrative they've written a whole narrative or if it's an essay it's a lot and so They're just like, oh, yeah, punctuation check. I did it. And they're not Mm -hmm. looking at it because they're overwhelmed versus in patterns of power. How I'm using it in my classroom is I'm using it during morning work. So after they do the solve and share for math, they do the patterns of power. And they do it on the smart board. And then I also just have my own notebooks, not the Patterns of Power Plus notebook, because this is something Mm -hmm. I bought myself. My district has not adopted it yet, although we might, which is really exciting. But anyways, they have a notebook. So on the the day that it's the invitation to imitate, they also write it in their notebook. But Mm -hmm. what I think happens is they're just looking at one sentence. So when they actually go to imitate, they are just writing one sentence as well. And I think that's so much less overwhelming than saying, edit what you wrote in writer's workshop. They, right. they just, they shut down.
0: And what's weird is by doing it this way in these small bite-sized digestible chunks, they become fluent or fluid with the information over time. And then they can actually start to see shaping their paper for meaning instead of trying to do it right. I'm trying to have this effect on my audience and it becomes a lot more exciting to look at grammar as a special effects devices. And that's what all of us know. Every teacher in that's listening to this podcast knows that they've been overwhelmed by grammar instruction at some point, whether they were a student or a teacher and how to do it and then, you know, get it, you know, get stuck in abstract terms instead of just what the actual art of what it does when it all comes together. And even though we're breaking it apart, we're still looking at a whole. You know, we look at a whole when it's a whole sentence. That that can be a context. I remember the revelation of that mm-hmm. in my earlier work when I find when I finally looked up context in the dictionary. Because you know, mm-hmm. do teach grammar in context. In the context of what? Well, they're reading and writing. Well, how? Authentically. But <laughs> I needed more guidance than that. And that's what Whitney and I have been kind of honing over these last few years in the patterns of power and patterns of wonder stuff. Well,
2: Well, and I think too, so often with editing, um, we see it and we teach it as fixing mistakes. And like you said, our students took all this time to write this entire narrative. So they don't have mistakes in their writing. (laughs) Like they don't They they think their writing is perfect, right? There's no mistakes here. So I'm going to check that um, because there are no mistakes. And so with Patterns of Power, we have that time to change their thinking around that to where it's not about fixing mistakes, right? We're taking away that threat of right or wrong um, and compliance, right? And moving more towards risk-taking and really looking at it through meaning and effect. So when it does come time during writing workshop to edit their piece, they can really look at that as a reader and bring in their focus phrases from patterns of power into the work that they're doing as editors and take a look at it in a whole different way than just fixing mistakes.
1: Yeah, I so. mean, it embraces the growth mindset is is mm-hmm. what it does. So you know, I've already seen a difference. I've only been using it for four weeks, so I used it the three weeks <clears throat> that we had in December. And then this week we used it, but so I didn't use it the Monday we came back because I had an 845 special. So I did it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yesterday was a snow day. Well, so yesterday was invitation to imitate and Mm -hmm. I was floored. What I got (laughs) was so much better than what I was seeing in December. And that was, this was only three days after coming back from, you know, from break, Mm -hmm. you know, people would say, Mm -hmm. oh, they forget things. Well, my students did not forget. And every one of them, except for one, wrote the sentence with a capital letter in the beginning. And when we first started, you know, I teach fourth grade. We were we were not there. <laughs> you know, it was yep. probably a third yep. of the class right <laughs> that was starting a sentence with a lowercase letter, and mm-hmm. only one student started with a lowercase letter. And so I was like, "Wow!" And then there were a lot of other great things happening too. It was much. It wasn't just capitalizing you know the first letter it was we were doing the lesson where it's like he had ledges of star wars figures um, on oh, I love that one you know mm-hmm. in his room from that the mm-hmm. quote from wonder and mm-hmm. um yeah they just it was fantastic they had their titles underlined the titles capitalized you know the punctuation at the end of the sentence I was so excited.
2: <laughs> well, and the craft moves that they try out from their mentors. You know, they, they learn so much more than just these um, grammar and convention skills. It's really about crafting in a way that shares their voice and brings in, we bring in a lot of figurative language and other ways to write sentences, sentence variety. And so they get to really try those out with the mentors there to help them. So things that they would never just go and do probably on their own,
0: <laughs> you yeah. know. And there's this little secret that a lot of people don't know, and it's really helpful once you figure it out. We're always telling kids they need depth of detail, clarity, examples, all that kind of stuff and interconnectedness and transitions and all this stuff. And like, how do you do that? You do it with grammar. That's Mm -hmm. the cool thing that you realize because the craft of every grammar move is detail. Even Mm -hmm. when you go to a piddly little apostrophe for an apostrophe yes. that's the detail that shows that chris owns that notebook it's chris apostrophe s yes and i said chris with an s because singular <laughs> nouns that end in s take a an apostrophe s um to show to show possession singular singular i didn't say plural mm-hmm. singular nouns take an apostrophe s even when they end with s z or sh it's it's a cool thing. But what, what, what's exciting about that is that everything is detailed. So not only when you learn grammar are you able to look at your own writing and see the meaning and effect you have, you're able to shape it and use those special effects devices to sort of manipulate your audience to read it in the way you intend. That is power.
1: Yeah. And I think what people don't realize is that every career you go into, you need to know how to write. Uh, you know, I yes. think there's a huge focus on STEM these days and there's this idea that, Oh, I'm going to be an engineer, so I don't need to know how to write. And that's simply not true. It's very important in every career that you know how to write. My son uh, is a student at Northeastern and he just finished a co-op at a, a construction company and he was there for eight months and they lost a multimillion dollar bid to another construction company because the, the university who, who you know, was awarding the job didn't like my son's company's diversity statement. So I said to him, I said, you should be the one writing your company's diversity mm-hmm. statement. He's like, no, no, mom, they have other people to do that. You know What do I know, right? So I just dropped it. Well, when it was his turn to put in a bid, it turned out the people that w- wrote the diversity statement, they weren't there that day. So he had to write it. And now <sighs> you know whose diversity statement the company uses. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's, I think it's important for people to realize this patterns of power in writing is no, it's in every field that you go in. If Mm -hmm. you know how to write in a powerful way, you are going to get more grants. You are going to get more jobs. You are going to be a more effective communicator with your staff. This is not just something, grammar is not just something you want to learn, you know, to get a good grade on a report card. It's, it's much more than that. And I think, you know that's what your <laughs> that's what your program is really getting at here
0: well it entwines reading and writing it's actually where activation of meaning happens Mm-hmm. So it's 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 like, so no matter what kind of writing you're going to do, yeah, you don't need to know what a subordinate clause is. But if you know what an awubus is, if you start your sentence with an awubus word, you're probably going to need a comma. You're going to take care of like half the mistakes. It's it's just interesting when you really look at the patterns. And that's why also why we use patterns, that idea. Because patterns, your brain loves patterns. Your brain seeks patterns. You want patterns. Rules, you're like, no. Uh. <laughs> Stay away from me with your rules of absolute right and absolute wrong, right? We, that one answer mentality doesn't work for writing. And mm-hmm. so it's so cool to be able to, like we said, Whitney and I are conversation causers. We, we throw the work back on the kids. Because, you know, we, as Harry Wong used to say, we shouldn't be leaving the door at the end of the day all tired. The kids should be tired. We should make them yes. do the work. And that's, we just hope that people really get that thread of conversation, whether it's patterns of wonder or patterns of power, or all the way from pre-K to high school. Uh, it's it's really important that it's about the conversation because it's that conversation is the theoretical key that unlocks the possibility because that's what raises their conscious level of awareness. That's what pierces them. They don't read unconsciously anymore. They learn as they read because they, it's an instructional a path just to read. I learned about grammar.
2: And, and through that, because we're doing this work around mentor texts and just these short little snippets with our students, they find their favorite authors and the author moves that are made in those books and begin to kind of collect and try out some of those moves in the writing that they're doing in writing workshop as well. So we're really teaching them how to, you know, find their own writing teachers um, out there. And I, I see that even with my daughter who's in fifth grade, you know, she's she's now, I see in the writing that she does, she's constantly, I see things coming in from the books that she's reading into her own writing. And I'm sure, you know, Kate, you see that with your students as well. Um, but it's because of this work that we're doing with our students, we're showing them what mentors can do for us as writers. Um, and so they can turn around and continue to work with
0: that on their own as well.
1: Yeah. I have so many things I want to say. First of all, have you all seen (laughs) the book, um, how to make a book about your dog by Chris Barton?
0: Oh, yeah. Chris yeah. is from Texas. We know Chris. He's yeah. an excellent writer. I've used his conclusion of the Dayglo brothers is my favorite, one of my favorite conclusions of any nonfiction book. So I'm sorry. Hey, Chris, we're talking about <laughs> you. He'll love it. His, his wife's a children's book writer as well, Jennifer Ziegler. And she's got that. a new book out. Yeah. They're, you should have them on your show. Tell them I told them that they should go on your show. <laughs> the two of them, but do the two of them. So anyways, tell us about Chris's book. I bought it, but I haven't cracked it.
1: Well, so I'm just saying that you know we were talking about, Whitney, you were saying how your editor is your writing partner. So even if you don't have a co-author, mm-hmm. you have an editor who's a writing writing partner. And what Chris does in that book is he talks about all the different people who work on the author you know, in order Mm -hmm. to get the book into the reader's hand, you know? And so I think that that book is a great way to also have that conversation with students about, you know, look, it's not just us in this classroom who need help and work with partners in writing. Look at all the different partners, you know, Chris Barton had in order to write this book. And so I think- That book in particular really supports what you're talking about, you know, the importance of conversation and showing that that's what professional writers do is they have a lot of conversations about their work.
2: I love that. I'm going to go ahead and get that book today.
0: Yeah. And I already have it. And so, you know, we'll be using it in one of our future, like patterns of revision, perhaps.
1: Hopefully. You never know what
0: comes around the corner.
1: (laughs) So I was hoping you both could talk about breakthrough moments that you've had. And I know you've already mentioned them, you know, somewhat before. Like Jeff, you were talking about like, well, how do you, you know, teach, you know, grammar and context? And and you both talked about, you know, how Whitney does the titles. And I mean, no, Jeff does the titles. Don't do the titles. Jeff does the titles. <laughs> Jeff does the titles. And Whitney, you know, helps like get the text narrowed down. And so I'm wondering if there are other breakthrough moments you've had in your writing or your teaching that you want to tell us about.
0: Well, I would just say there was one breakthrough moment for me as a writer when I was trying to write teacher books in the early aughts, end of the 90s, early aughts. That's the early 2000s. It sounds so old to say that, but I think that's how you're supposed to do it. Anyway, I was in that 2002, and I wrote an article for Voices from the Middle. And uh, this editor contacted me and I was trying I was trying actively seeking an editor, and she, she said, "I like what you're doing here with grammar." And I said, "Oh, I don't like to call it that." And she said, "Oh, I understand that, but I like what you're doing with it because it does seem so comfortable that you're not calling it grammar." And I at the time, this is such a ten year, but remember the time I worked in Title I schools and, and kind of... Environments that necessary, weren't necessarily enriched as much as they could be. And I'm talking the literal physical buildings and supplies we had were different than other people. Um, and so I was trying to write a writer's workshop book for people who couldn't do Nancy Atwell. That when they got to their 13th color file folder, they gave up being the Martha Stewart of Writing Workshop. <laughs> I mean, I love Nancy Atwell. I got all my ideas yeah. from her. I, I totally worship and love and adore her, but that. I, anyway, (laughs) at the time in the early 2000s, the teacher's like, the the, the editor was like, we do not need another book on writing workshop right now. That's not, she said, but what you do with grammar, I want you to play with that. I never in a million years would have done that. She changed, Brenda Power is her name. She's retired now. She ran choice literacy after Stenhouse, Mm -hmm. but I would have never known that that was the value of what I had to share. And then then that moves on. Mm-hmm. And then I connect with people like Whitney and then Whitney and I start working together. That to me is the breakthrough. Sometimes knowing what it is that you're saying that's extra valuable, because mm-hmm. we all have a lot of things to say, but they're little nuggets that are extra valuable. And sometimes it takes somebody else to see that and to, 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 to help you narrow it down. And I, I'll i be forever grateful Because I I would have never, in a million million years, written a grammar book when I started teaching in 1989. That was not going to happen. I didn't like grammar. I taught whole language, and I used to spell whole language with H O L E. (laughs) Just and and anyway, I'm going to stop. Just Whitney, save me.
2: well i I just feel like there's so many breakthrough moments right um and so i I definitely think when I think about Jeff's story, it just reminded me of his work and how powerful it was for me as an educator as well um I was a coach when I first read daily um
0: Everyday editing. Everyday editing.
2: Thank you. I was like I just completely forgot the title of one of my favorite books. Um but Everyday Editing I was reading that as a coach and I was like this is what we need to be doing. Not daily oral language, not daily edit, not a, you know it's it's I'm as a coach I was constantly hearing our kids aren't transferring any of this stuff that we're doing, you know. And I was like well we have to do something differently and And so I was reading that book and I was like, oh, this is just so powerful. And we were actually in planning for our summer. We have in my district, we um, would do a summer Institute for teachers. um, And the coaches were the ones that would run that and, and would present it those. And so we, we were planning our breakthrough set, our breakout sessions. So we had our our core grade levels, but then we had breakouts that were open to anybody. And um, so we were signing up for topics on that. And I said, I'd like to take editing and grammar. And they're like, you would? And
0: I said, We need to do
2: something different. What we're doing is not working. And I'm tired of hearing about how it's not working. And I'm reading this book and I want to go ahead and do a breakout session on that. And they're like, okay, go for it. Um, And so I, you know, the breakout session teachers sign up and they come in and the room could hold 20, you know, 20 people. And so we just ran that breakout session every day. Well, that first day I had, you know, about 20, 18, 20 people. And the next day I ran the exact same session Well, the room was full and they had to shut it out and say, tell people, no, you can't come. I'm sorry. Try again tomorrow. Um, and then the next day there was a line before we even started breakout sessions. And I was like, that's how good this stuff is. Like teachers want to come. The word's getting out of how good this work is. Uh, so the last day, that Friday, we ended up moving it just to the cafeteria and invited anyone that wanted to come. And that was kind of this aha moment, just even for us as a district as, as wow, you know, this this invitational process is really powerful for it to, make that many teachers want to come to this one session, there's a need for it. Um, and it's powerful. And they're hungry. They're, they're, hungry. they're hungry. They're interested in learning more. Uh, and so that's kind of what spurred me meeting Jeff is then after that happened is when our coordinator ended up bringing Jeff into the district to train the coaches in his work. And my, I just go back to my notes on that day. Um, you know, I didn't know Jeff, Jeff didn't know me. And I was just so excited about him being there all of my, I tend to use a lot of exclamation marks anyway, but um, in my notes, everything is like in all caps, tons of exclamation marks. You could just see my excitement of everything that he was saying that day. And I remember getting my picture with him and him signing my book. I had no clue um, that this is where we would be today. Uh, so I just feel like that was a breakthrough of just discovering him um, and his work and then realizing. How powerful it truly is um, out there.
0: And when we would have our writing weekends where we would work together, because um, Whitney was still teaching full time when we did the, uh, or doing it being a coach full time at the beginning. And um, we would come together. I would help her lug in all the books she brought, and I'd drag my books in the big <laughs> dining room. And then we would just start working, and we literally would forget to say hello. Mm-hmm. um how are you how have things been <laughs> N- none of that happened we just started working and it was it was such And we would go to if we had to eat we'd take our stack we'd take our chicago manual of style on something we were trying to figure out that we could because conversation we we knew this kind of, we were trying to figure out how can we explain this in a way that makes sense because a lot of grammar stuff is like oh my god yeah. do they really need to know this <laughs> And um, and and do I know it? And yeah. do other uh, do other educated human beings know it? And what is it that they actually need to know? And I think that's
2: we, yeah. We would read a standard, and we would be like, "What does that even mean?" And yeah. I just remember we'd sit around at La Madeline with Chicago Manual Style sitting right there in front of us. <laughs> I think my favorite, uh, so many my times.
0: our favorite standard was write a complete sentence with a complete <laughs> subject and a complete predicate. Sure. I mean, what is that? It just means write a sentence. <laughs> but it was hilarious. It's a complete sentence with a complete predicate and a complete subject. Well, yes. Obviously
1: they were tired of things being incomplete. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: This must be complete.
1: <laughs> it, it will be complete. I don't care about anything else. But it's gonna be complete.
0: <laughs>
1: it's interesting because you're both You both said that your breakthrough moments happen through conversations with other people mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pattern.
1: It is a pattern. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, and I'm embarrassed to say, but I don't have any idea, and I'm sure I'm going to absolutely butcher this term, but what is an oeis? Oh,
0: a Yeah.
1: What is you that? Will,
2: as a fourth grade teacher, I'm sure you will be learning about this through your, if you're using patterns of power through the rest of the year, your kids will definitely know what an awoobus is by the end. <laughs>
0: uh, I'll just get, I'll just give you a little teaser. Like, you know how we always start off with a, a sentence. So if there was a sentence that started off with an if clause, like if you don't know what an awoobus is, comma, yeah. you might want to keep listening. If okay. it's going to be an awoobus word, but we don't start uh, off with a woobus. We just start off if you start a sentence with if, comma, you're probably going to need a comma. And then and that's our focus phrase and that's what we focus on. And then we go to maybe when. When you start a sentence with when, comma, you're probably going to need a comma. And then we maybe do one more like since or. Any any of yeah. the other ones, and then that's wubus. They're subordinating conjunctions. Kids I see. kids, it's a mnemonic. Kids will get excited about doing an wubus, where they won't get excited about subordinate clauses to make <laughs> complex sentences.
1: <laughs> no.
0: In which the two ideas are connected, but um one subordinates to the other. And it's like all this stuff that people do, and I'm like, oh my God, they they use complex sentences when they're in kindergarten. Yes. When I they do. when I get home, I'm going to oh, watch yeah. TV. It's a complex sentence. There That's an OOBAS sentence. And we when you make it easy, and something they want to know, like you put up the OOBAS mnemonic, and they're like, "What's that?" And you go, "Oh, you're not ready yet." And you know, make it because see how you wanted to know. I bet you dollars to donuts. If I had said subordinating clauses and to create complex sentences, you wouldn't have said, "Hey." I want to hear what that is. <laughs>
2: Probably not. <laughs> and in, 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 in patterns of power, Kate, we have the Awubus hands. Um, so they actually trace their hands in their notebook, and then they write the ten Awubus words. Um, I love that. On the fingers. So it's coming. It, it, you will definitely be doing that, um, you know, I, I'm sure, knowing fourth grade, um, we, we do complex sentences in fourth grade. Uh, so, yeah, it's, a really, it's really fun. Um, it's,
1: I think it's like chapter 19. Okay, I'm like, okay, I want to know the page, but I won't be obnoxious so they're probably not on the page off the top. <laughs> it's, the one for complex, it's complex sentences. So I think it's
2: chapter 19. I think, 18, I think, is compound sentences.
0: Because I think joy – In conversation, we're missing from the grammar component. We were making it like a vocabulary lesson instead of, Mm -hmm. or a fixing lesson rather than a creating lesson. I always like to say it's grammar is a creational facility, not a correctional one. It's a thinker. Well, I
2: remember I remember teaching back in 1999 grammar where there were a lot of worksheets. I used worksheets to teach those grammar skills, right? I used a worksheet to teach what a noun was, and then we filled out a lot of worksheets on nouns, and I graded a lot of papers, um, and then they still didn't know what a noun was. Right? And, <laughs> so.
0: and I want to invite our teachers not to freak out that we're going to ignore grammar because what we're not going to do is ignore grammar. We're going to ignore some of the terminology at first so that it doesn't become a barrier to them understanding it. You go, I promise you, you go walk up to a very well-educated person in most cases and ask them what a subordinate clause is. They might not know, but if they know, they know how to write them. And that's the key. I think we get lost sometimes in our intention of thinking they need to understand this as a vocab lesson, as a right or wrong lesson, instead of one of which seeks meaning and clarity and effect and excitement, really, in that conversation. I love that you said that because this is is writing Mm -hmm. and reading, Mm -hmm. both together. Mm -hmm. And your writing and reading scores go up from... From the patterns that we've seen with classrooms, when you take the time to talk about these intentionalities, both as a reader and a writer to create meaning. And it's, that's, that's what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be worksheets, but that doesn't mean we're not mm-hmm. going to talk about a noun, but we're not because there's a lot of ripoff work on the web. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to get the lawyers to try to take care of it from Highlights Corporation, but you can't stop it. But, um, one of the things they do that kills me the most is on the second day, instead of it being the invitation to compare and contrast, where it is driven by conversation and all this really high level analysis and short and short level analysis, too, simple analysis, they'll take the sentence and they'll define the part of speech for every single word in the sentence. That is a no no. Now, if you talk about how nouns are a craft move, putting stuff Actual stuff like if you say perfume, it's not as powerful as if you say Chanel number five or Charlie, it'll set you in time and a place. And that's that's about nouns, that's about stuff, Mm -hmm. and use that as a craft. Then we can talk about nouns, but this whole thing talking about every single part of speech in a sentence that what are we doing? It's like some kind of surgery.
2: <laughs> yeah, conversation over identification is is key here. Absolutely, um, the, we don't need to spend our time identifying every part of speech in every lesson. Right? Um, it's not about our, our our standards. Don't even ask us to identify. It's use. Right. It's form and use.
1: Well, yeah. and and like you said, that's just completely not a useful skill to have in life. No one, <laughs> right. no one cares what part of speech it is.
0: It's about authentic reading right. and writing. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, another aspect that I really like about using Patterns of Power in my classroom is when they do the invitation to imitate, you know, which I have them do up on the smart board or I have, we call it a graffiti board. It's our old, Uh like, COVID divider. Anyways, um, you learn about your students. It's like a mini Mm -hmm. social emotional learning lesson, you know. So when they imitated the sentence this week of, you know, he had ledges full of Star Wars characters and then this book open on his bed. Like it was really fun because each person had their own, you know, ledge full of whatever characters and their own, you know, book on the bed and each person's book was different. And so Mm -hmm. it was a great way for the students to see what titles their peers were reading, you know, what titles their peers liked um, without that being the intention of what was happening. But it happened anyway.
2: I love that because it really does build community um, through that conversation. But then they do bring their own lives into those imitations. And I remember, um, you know, when we were all doing virtual school <laughs> and just the the things teachers would um, share with us of I'm getting to know my students this year through their imitations, right, because they couldn't have them in class and get to know them in that way. And the students were building a community through their imitations and they were discovering um, what was going on, you know, in their personal personal lives during this very traumatic time in our world um you know and it was just so powerful I, there were some that just brought tears to my eyes of just wow this is really powerful to be able to get to know our students um in that way right and and to get an insight into what they're going through
0: and just so you know i got this picture of Whitney when she was working in classrooms virtually to test out some of the lessons that she hadn't had a chance to test out before everything got shut down and she'd work with people with masks and all that stuff. But there were other times she did it virtually. And I just think about those cute kids and how excited they were to just to talk and interact. Cause think about this. If we're going to have a conversation of trying to find what's wrong with the sentence up here, Imagine the kind of cortisol that that probably makes your body hormonally produce Mm -hmm. because we're already in this thing of wrong. Like I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be whatever versus what do you see here? What do you notice? What else? And then you as a teacher get to take those noticings and stretch them out. So the the direct instruction happens. It just happens as a result of you responding to the kids' wants and needs to know. And that'll happen because we've chosen sentences that will particularly spur that conversation so that we can draw them into what they need to know, like the focus phrase is it. When I start a sentence with a when, I'm probably going to need a comma um, or whatever my sentences like i i write complete sentences would not be a great focus phrase but my sentences have subjects and verbs or in first grade my sentences have nouns and if they start to figure that out can you imagine what things can happen later if they don't have to just keep doing the same worksheets over and over again every year
2: yeah and i think back to just that um taking away this idea of being wrong it's such an inclusive um process as well. Every student gets to participate, right? Um, I, I, Kate, you talked about how you were, you know, a bilingual teacher, you've been an ELL um, teacher, and just our, our students who are learning the language still get to participate. Our students with special needs, they still get to participate. I remember I was on a campus that um, had full inclusion. And so we had students in there that would be you know, in the classroom, but half the time they were not participating um in the lesson that was going on simply because it was so much above where they were um working intellectually, but patterns of power, that sentence went up and every student could notice something, right? And so they really truly were included. Um and it was inclusive. So I just think that's powerful too.
1: Yeah, that's true. We haven't really talked about that yet. But that invitation mm-hmm. to notice, it isn't just about grammar. It's about whatever you Mm -hmm. notice in the sentence. And it's really interesting. That is another way to get to know your students, because it's really interesting to see what each child points out. I mean, some of the people will talk about commas or capitals, Mm -hmm. but other people, I don't know, they talk about things I didn't even think about. Like this week, they were talking about, oh, both these sentences start with he had or she had. And, And to myself, honestly, I'm thinking like, okay, why... Why are they noticing that? Like I, I wouldn't even notice mm-hmm. that. So you know, it's just interesting window into how my students are thinking. You know, whether or not I understand why they're thinking that way, that's a whole other level. But if we did, hadn't done the activity, I wouldn't even think that someone would notice that the sentence start with started with he had. But obviously, they you know mm-hmm. must have been thinking about
2: was he? Who
1: you know he? Mm-hmm. But also the had. I think. I mean, I mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't process it with them partly because I'm just processing it now, but I'm wondering if they were focusing on the verb tense there, you know, like thinking like, oh, this has already happened versus he has, which is probably what was going on. And I didn't pick it up at the time.
0: Well, a second grader one time pointed out the word had in a sentence and she said, she was, she got so excited. She goes, I know what that means. And I said, what is, what does had mean? She goes, she didn't, she don't got it no more.
1: Yeah, that's right. And
0: I said, "Yes, she doesn't have it anymore." And so, so that was that connection and that real. And we honor. We don't. I I said it back in a different way than she said it, but I honored her, what she could see, and that was her participation. It was so sad too because I remember her because she was told she she told me when we started the lesson at the rug that she had to sit in the corner at a desk on the other side of the room, but she wanted to be there. But she was telling me, and as we were having the discussion, her her desk. Was scooting across the room because she just she loved it and she was so successful at it. And then, and then success breeds success because if you can do this small little thing and you're feeling positive, well, then I'll try it. It feels like a safe environment. And then I'm successful at it. I mean, that's beautiful. Then I'm going to try more and I'll write more. I think we help break this current stream of struggling writers that we have because all a struggling writer is is somebody who's afraid they're going to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. And when we open up the possibilities instead of all the limitations, I think they become freer. hmm
2: I, I love it when they notice, um, especially when I go into like first grade classrooms, there's spaces between those words. <laughs> yes, or, or that's a sight word. You know, we know that word, that word we've been working with, or that word has an R controlled vowel. And they bring in <laughs> things they've learned from other parts of their day um, into the conversation as well. And I, I just love it, you know, and I'll see that in fifth grade. Oh, that, there's a simile there. And um, so anyway, it's, it's really funny when and they they notice, like, spaces or, or um, spelling patterns as well because they get so excited. But,
0: <laughs> but that's, that's really insightful, Kate, that just after five weeks yes. you're noticing just all that you can get from listening to what they say when you walk around when, when they're talking mm-hmm. with partners. Because, you know, if you ever ask, like, what do you notice – and nobody says anything, which can happen at first, turn and talk to your neighbor and see if there's anything you notice or wonder in this sentence. And then if they have that little smart time to talk, then, then the larger class conversation can be a lot stronger or if you're working in groups. But it's, it's, just, it's just interesting. They do actually, after a while, have things to say. They're just afraid to say them. And we don't have to worry about what they say or say. Not that. That's not what I mean. Don't ever do that. You always have to honor what they say. And you may need to name it and you may need to extend upon it if it's part of your focus phrase or something important that you need to review and you get to make that choice as a teacher. But it's all responsive in that little framework that we're doing, this patterns of power process one day at a time over a couple of, mm-hmm. you know, we yeah. like to say a couple of weeks, 10 minutes a day over a couple of weeks. And usually you'll finish by Wednesday of that second week or maybe Thursday, and you just start something new on a Friday. <gasps> or you have specials time at 820. So there's Friday was spoken for anyway, you know, it happens.
2: Well, and I like to just a a little tidbit too. I like to spend a couple days um, on the invitation to apply. Uh, cuz that's a big transfer Ooh. piece and you know after we celebrate and um, it's the jumping off point to transfer an application we say hey look you know you've done this um and of course we wouldn't say this out loud but with scaffolds in place and now you're ready <laughs> to go take that scaffold away and go out and try it on your own you know in a in a wide variety of ways and and so during that invitation to apply that can go across a couple of days and if we need to make an anchor chart during that time and take that skill a little little deeper and talk about other ways, you know, this verb is used. Um, we, we certainly can, we can use that time to do that and give them time to write in across content areas with that focus phrase and, and collect, give them time to go into the books they're reading and do some collecting of how other authors are using that skill. So that's why we say too you know, give yourself a couple weeks, give yourself some time um, to take this and, and spend some time in that application um, process.
1: I'm wondering how you both balance your your writing and your consulting career. So what your writing process looks like. I'm definitely learning on this one. <laughs> Um, I, I tend to, uh,
2: over, overdo my consulting and then it's time to write and I don't have time to write. So Jeff has been really good, um, mentoring me in that area, saying, no, you need to block these days on your calendar. These are writing days. You do not book, um, consulting, you know, um, time during these writing days. And so I have, that's one of my, um, resolutions for 2022 is to really pay closer attention to my calendar, um, and, and truly make, time for the writing that needs to happen.
0: You know, that was my struggle too. When I was on the road Mm -hmm. a lot, I would have, I would be three years late on a book, Mm -hmm. um, because I just was, I kept taking the jobs and, and then you come home and you're exhausted because of the things that come with flight and, working for six hours and trying to find stuff, just nothing, nothing worse than teachers yeah. have, but you understand that just that slam of it doesn't stop. Uh, I recently in the last few years was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And so I can't actually do all the complex cause it's a brain disease, all the complex moves that travel takes. I can't always do. So I do uh, virtual stuff, which is so nice. Um, I, only because I can't do it the other way. I would much rather be with people, but that we have this opportunity to do this. But yeah, you have to schedule time to write and you have to make it important and it has to be long chunks of time because you can, you can revise in little bits. That's what I learned from Jeff Wilhelm. This is another one of those transformational moments. Jeff Wilhelm told me, I said I was working on a book, trying to write a book at a workshop he was giving. And he goes, well, what? here's what you do. No matter how crappy it is, just write the first draft. Mm. He says, don't keep writing the first chapter over and over and over and over and over again. He says, just draft it. He said he would go to a hotel or like his family, take him to the beach and let them go out and play. And then he would write all day. And get that draft done, because then in little pieces while you're on the plane, you can do some editing, you can do some revising, you can do some plumping up or rereading. But that's that's kind of how you have to think about it, because got to get that first mm-hmm. draft or you'll stay stuck at that beginning part and never go any further. And you'll just it's a it's a common writer's trope yeah. that they just stick with the beginning. You
2: have to know it's going to be crappy. Like that was my biggest when I know uh, when I was just writing patterns of wonders, just the first few chapters of just getting, I knew what it wanted to say, but I was so worried about putting it on the page. And um, (laughs) Jeff would be like, you don't have anything on the page yet. I'm like, I know. And he's like, just write it. And I said, it's still percolating. He's like, well, we can't do anything with it until it's on a page. Right. Um, And so I just had to do it and I knew it was crappy. Um, and I, and it, you just have to be okay with that. Right. And that's definitely something uh, that I learned that, yes, it's going to be crappy and I'm going to be okay with it.
0: So, and that's a connection for classrooms too, is that we tell them mistakes are okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, to become a better writer, to become an effective writer, mistakes are actually expected. Mm-hmm and if you stop avoiding mistakes cuz when you avoid mistakes you avoid complexity you avoid risk you avoid growth um so you can't be avoiding mistakes you got to be you've got to be embracing them and learning from them and expecting them and then it's like whitney said it's not so hard
1: so yeah. when you were in the classroom and you were writing did you both approach your writing in the same way so did you do it like on the weekend when cuz you're saying you're talking about longer chunks of time mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah, and we would we would get to get, we would schedule weekends together, um, and those weekends were we would work from you know eight a.m. till midnight. <laughs> I mean, we would just keep going, and um, those were serious chunks of time that we would just work, 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 work. Um, and then I did with Patterns of Power. I, I did a lot of nights. You know, I would get home from school, um, get the child off to bed, <laughs> and then go ahead and pull out the computer and and do some more work around that. So, it's it's it is just trying to make the time.
0: Um, yeah, you have to you have to make the time. Tom Romano wrote him a book. I was told to him I was trying to write a book. I always tell people when I was starting to write books. So I'm working on writing a book. He wrote in the front of my book, "If your passion is real, you will write your book."
2: I love that.
0: And I was like. Yeah.
2: Ah, Mm -hmm. I mean,
0: and, and, and you can't, like, I have people sometimes write me and ask me about writing and they say, well, I want to do it, but I have another job right now. So I just, I want to be able to quit and do it. And I'm like, well, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. First of all, you've got to, you've got to get through a period of time where you're teaching full time and all that comes with that. And either getting up early or staying up late or using your weekends, or I can't tell you how many Christmas holidays I've spent writing. Um, and this, even this New Year's uh, even day, we were working on something mm-hmm. for uh, the high school book, which is going to be out in 2022. And it's like, you just have to give up some of that time. And the, it is a loss in some ways. It is a loss, but then there's, you have to, every time you make a choice, that's what decision means. Decision is a cutting off place if you trace back its meaning. And when you say yes to something fully, you're going to have to say no to Mm -hmm. something else. And, you know, I haven't written a Christmas card in 10 years. (laughs) and i'm still amazed when i get some but i'm noticing what's funny what's funny to me is you get them later and later and later now so like it's like january i like got this rush because i started feeling like because we have this little wreath which you put the cards on and it was like there was like one kind of sad hanging and then all of a sudden in january 1st we like got this load of them or everybody got off school and got time to write
1: (laughs) Okay, so you've given us some great advice so far. Set aside chunks of writing time, whether it be weekends, morning, evenings. Get the whole draft down, right? Don't keep mm-hmm. rewriting your, you know, first chapter over and over again. Be willing to make mistakes, right? Embrace those mistakes. Mm-hmm. Is there any other advice you would like to give to people who are just starting out their writing careers?
2: So one thing that Jeff um, taught me was to keep what he calls a thought journal. Uh, and that's just a a place where you're just recording your thoughts anytime you have a thought. Um, And sometimes that's through voice memos on our phone (laughs) um, to where, you know, all of a sudden we think of something and we're driving and we just go ahead and put it in a voice memo uh, or we just record it. And it's just little snippets, but those things do come into play when we actually do the writing. So that thought journal has really been a a nice little tip from Jeff that I've learned.
0: And to piggyback on that, there's, the, they, there's there's a pattern when they look at geniuses like Salvador Dali and stuff. Salvador Dali would would take a nap at a certain time of day and he'd put a bunch of pennies or marbles, I can't remember, in his hand. And so just at that point where he would fall off to sleep and the marbles would hit the floor, it would wake him up and he would paint. Because that's when he knew he was creative. Because that mm-hmm. that editor the self-editor, the critical editor is asleep still at those first few minutes of waking. Mm -hmm. And if you can get your then you're then you're free to do your art. So a pad by the bed, when I talk to kids about Zach De La Cruz and writing fiction, I told them just this works for fiction and nonfiction. Keep a pad next to your bed because you will wake up, you will solve problems in the night that you will never be able to solve during Mm -hmm. the day. And you just you don't even turn on the light you just write it down and you go back to sleep and you wake up the next morning and then you've got that and sometimes I've had to get up and just open the computer and type a paragraph or something because it's it's there I've solved it but if I didn't do that that could take weeks mm-hmm. of work to do so it's 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 a lot about capturing I love that I forget about the voice memo I used to text myself but that doesn't work because then they go down to the bottom <laughs> and you don't see them <laughs>
1: Well, you know it's interesting. I'm a biphasic sleeper, so I sleep in two different parts, and when I wake up that first time that's that's when any problem that I haven't been able to solve when i'm awake that's that's where the answer is and then I get up and write mm-hmm. and if it's the weekend, I go back to bed, and if not, I just go to work so But that is my time that second I wake up from that first time I fall asleep, I'll wake mm-hmm. up with an answer. It's like it's weird, it's almost like it's been waiting for me to wake up, you know. Um, it's just a really powerful time. I was hoping before we go, um, I usually ask for one classroom activity to share with students. And I listened to the um, podcast with when you were interviewing Whitney, and she was talking about the invitation to wonder. And I was hoping if you could just talk about that, because I think that is so powerful. Um, it just, I don't know, just gives me chills. So in in patterns
2: of wonder, um, you know, we we tap into this natural curiosity that young children have. Uh, they they they're curious about everything. Everything is new to them, right? You walk into a pre K classroom or a kindergarten classroom, and it's just full of excitement because everything is just exciting and new. And so that's what we tap into. So we share instead of a sentence um, from a book, we actually share an entire page from a picture book. So we're looking not just at the word. Words on the page, but also the pictures. Um, and Kate, you and I were talking before um, recording today just about this idea of visual literacy, right? And I, and, um, and I just didn't think of it in this way that you and I talked about, it, but now I'm like, oh, yeah, this is <laughs> great. Um, but we ask, you know, take a look at this page and we read it to them and, and we say, what do you wonder here? And a lot of times their wonderings are tied directly to their noticings. And so they don't even necessarily share what they're wondering. They share what they're noticing and then they they wonder from that or vice versa. So it's wonder and notice. We start with what do you wonder, but if we need the prompt of what do you see, what do you notice, we can certainly do that too. But um, it leads to this conversation around what um, authors and illustrators do uh, to make meaning for their readers, because that's what our emergent writers are doing right um, they are writing through their pictures they're making meaning through their pictures um, as they attempt to make symbols and words and sentences eventually um, and there's so much oral language that we can fe- that we can really tap into as they tell us about their pictures so we we use our mentor as the whole page here um, and what they can do to gain meaning from both the pictures and the words on the page um, and so they they might notice some capital letters but some of, you know, depending on where they are in their emergent phase of writing, uh, sometimes they don't even really recognize that there's words on the page yet, right? And so there's so much meaning in those pictures and they really can tap into those. And we get to have conversations around those and still teach about nouns and verbs and prepositions through the pictures and what's happening there.
0: And Whitney got the permissions to have a lot of yeah. those full page so if you don't have it at your library or you don't have the book available, the full picture is available that you can use on your document camera or snap a picture of and slide into your PowerPoint. Cause that's again, that like you were talking about Kate, having everything ready mm-hmm. at your fingertips. And I just wanted to add to what Whitney said here, cause it's a really important brain structure thing that's happening here. When we're doing, what do you wonder? What do you notice? That whole first day is always about observation mm-hmm. and And even compare and contrast is about observation. It's observing how they're alike and how they're different. But Betty Garner in her book, Getting to Got It, Mm -hmm. talks about this idea that struggling learners have in common underdeveloped observational cognitive structures. Again, underdeveloped observational cognitive structures. And what we're doing through the what do you notice and what do you wonder at the start, at the beginning, is pulling in all that curiosity, all that inquiry, and making it kind of manageable because it's about this one little chunk here. And there's so much to stretch and grow out of that, but that increases their ability to observe and see what's in front of them. And what Betty Garner says in that ASCD book is that that's the base kind of the foundation of all other cognitive structures. So if you don't have those observational cognitive structures, seeing and naming what's in front of you, delineating what's in front of you and what's not and what's different and what's alike, all that stuff is going to make them ready for all other sorts of complex cognitive work that they have to do in school. So
2: by looking at the pictures, they can really build on the observational, you know, we can begin to really develop that observational cognitive structure, which is interesting, Kate, because you and I were talking about graphic novels and how this ties to graphic novels. So Jeff wasn't here yet. I'd love for you to uh, just share with Jeff kind of what you were thinking here because it really got to me uh, thinking more about this work as well.
1: Well, I was saying, Jeff, um, that I am very excited about this pattern of wonder idea of looking at a picture in a picture book and then comparing it to another picture and how I think that's very important because visual literacy is so much more important today in our society than it was you know, even 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that students really prefer, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them prefer to read graphic novels. So then in doing the work with patterns of wonder, I feel like it's setting, setting them up to be more successful graphic novel readers. It's it's improving their their visual literacy, I think. And I was just thinking about how I'd like to do some of that in my classroom. And it's something I talk about anyways, but we're doing the Cybert Smackdown right now in my classroom. And we read uh, Giant Squid because it was a 2016 honor book. And we talked about, well, why might this have won an honor? And the kids had a lot of different ideas to talk about, but no one mentioned the art. And I kept trying to lead them there, but no one was talking about it. So I finally (laughs) said, well, what about the art? And then everyone had something to say but it was almost like they felt like they couldn't talk about the art and how it contributed to the meaning and the magic of the book. And so what I think what you're doing with Patterns of Wonder is that you are bringing the art into the literacy discussion from day one in the classroom, you know, from that Mm -hmm. pre-K classroom. And so that, you know, students who use Patterns of Wonder, you know, when they get to fourth grade and the teacher says, well, why do you think that this book might have been a cyberdonna or why do you think it won the Caldecott? they're going to know to talk about the art. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's part of the genius of Patterns of Wonder is that by having the students talk about the art, you're developing their visual literacy as well as, you know, (laughs) as well as learning about nouns. I I think you're just doing a huge service to them by giving them an opportunity to increase their visual literacy skills.
0: And it's funny in the high school book, which we just, like I said, is at the typesetter right now, they have we have several graphic novel excerpts that we use for the compare and contrast and also for the observational structure or even for um, even for applications and things like that. And again, we have them right there in the book so you can do it in QR codes where you can go read this cool poem or read this cool short story Uh, again, trying new ways to make it easier. For teachers to um, access information quickly and not have to uh, spend so much time prepping when they've got so many other things to prep.
1: Yeah, and it exposes kids to different titles they may not know about. And I mm-hmm. also think, you know, makes them feel like what they're learning is relevant. I mean, if we're talking mm-hmm. about literacy and we're not talking about graphic novels, you're not gonna listen to us. I mean, that's right. <laughs> just, they're just not. And so, in order, for us to be relevant in the classroom, we have to be including graphic novels. For sure.
0: And Definitely. so and so kind of just summing that up, that patterns of power process causes conversation, but it also causes reading and writing because I hear that book and I want to go mm-hmm. get it.
1: That's right. And and mm-hmm. we get
0: exposed to so many different voices and it's so important today more than ever that we really try to diversify that. Set of books that we have in front of our kids so that yes. they can see themselves, but also see others as well. Mm-hmm.
1: I agree completely. And on that note about diversifying our literature, what books do you think elementary classrooms should have in their collection that you two have not written? Um, and I know so you could talk like, about an hour for this, but just like yeah. when you're thinking about like books if- for children. Yeah, books, books for, for children. Like, okay. No, for mm-hmm. children. If you mm-hmm. know, if you walked so into an many. elementary classroom and that teacher only had money to buy you mm-hmm. know, five books or four books, three books, whatever, which books would you want to see there? And people dislike this question because, of course, we all love books and we could talk for an hour. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could see behind me. I
2: yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think Love by Matt de la Pena is one of the most beautifully written books out there. Um, and it's extremely diverse. Um, that and, and especially when thinking about what illustrations do, this one really um, brings this idea of love, you know, to just something so concrete. It's definitely one of my favorite picture books out there. Um, I
1: don't know that so one. So thank you. Sure.
2: Oh, please go get it. It's, it's just beautifully written um, in, in illustrated. So, and then, I mean, I, love, just some of my favorite authors, even I love Jerry craft speaking of graphic novels. um. There's so Steve, many.
0: Steve Sheinkin has written yes. so many good books. A lot yes. of them are for high school. Some of them for middle school, some of them for a cheeky fifth grader. Um, mm-hmm. But it's that those, what I've been amazed at in the last couple of years is how nonfiction has just gotten so rich mm-hmm. and they're great mm-hmm. things to pull from. Mm-hmm. That's
2: I love Sharon Draper as an, as a novel oh, writer. Yeah, One of my favorites. Yeah um, Alan Gratz, of course, for upper, upper grades.
0: And you also said advice for writers. And that would yeah. be the one, the old standard that everybody always gives, um, read it used yeah. to irritate me, but it's true. Read the genre you want to write, read lots of the genre you want to write, read other stuff too, but read lots of the genre that you want to write. Um, and I remember Catherine Patterson, I was a fourth grade teacher and I went to see her at a book signing and I was telling her cause that's I first, my first, work was trying to write children's books, which is very, very difficult, as all of you know, uh, getting them published or getting any attention. And she said, oh, dear, if I can write a book, anyone can.
2: (laughs) Wow. Wow. There's just so, and, they, and, and, you know, Nerdy Book Club is one of my favorite, um, groups to follow, and they just came out with all of their, their award winners of, uh, you know, the top books and their opinions, um, for 2021. So I, th- as they were coming out each day, being published each day, I, I was getting on the library and getting those books from the library. And I just, that's something I do. I just have my stack that I just read, you know, and anytime award winners come out, I go and read them. And um, it's just important to read what's out there and, and what's, uh, when thinking about diversity Oh, this is one definitely that I want to get into a classroom. Right. So.
1: It's interesting that Steve Schenken, I have um, Lincoln's grave robbers in my oh, classroom. Yeah. And and one year I had a, I teach fourth grade, and one year I had a fifth grade teacher come to me and she's like, Kate, she's like, my student swears that you have a book about Lincoln's grave robbers. And that is the book that she wants to read. And I, can I borrow it? I'm like, sure, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I was like, that student remembered that title over the summer. And I don't need, I don't even remember what time of year it was, but something about, you know, that title caught her interest. And, Stuck there, and then the next year she wanted to read it. So I I love his work.
0: I've learned so much about history and things that I didn't know. King George, what was his problem? Is a great fourth grade book when you're learning American history. It's just he's got voice. He's like the Adam McKay of of children's literature. You know, Adam McKay takes those things like uh, you know, don't look up, Wall Street. Mm -hmm the wall street thing that where all the information is out, just different ways to get you the information in an exciting kind of way that you can fill in some of the blanks and it doesn't overwhelm you, but gets you interested. And that's really all we ask for is to get people interested in something. Right. Absolutely. I
2: well, like thank- the Brown bookshelf too. Like that's another one that I I follow a lot. Um, see what books they have out there as well.
1: Well, thank you both like what, so much. Which for those. ones they
2: recommend. Yeah,
1: yeah, those are great recommendations. And actually, I don't think anyone has, I mean, it must not be true, but I feel like I don't think anyone's mentioned in the recommendation section, the Nerdy Book Club or the Brown Bookshelf. So that would be oh, great to have those awesome. resources out there. So, yeah. So great. what's something that brings you joy? I have found that making this podcast brings me joy. And that was not something that I, I thought would come out of it, which sounds really silly to say, but it's the truth. <laughs> I actually really love talking about writing and teaching in an intense way with people that I, you know, that I usually don't know. Sometimes I have people on that I that I know through other venues, but it just gives me a tremendous amount of joy. And I was hoping that you two would share something that gives you a tremendous amount of joy. And it it can be about, you know, writing or teaching or reading, but it doesn't have to be.
0: Mine's going to be riding my bike. It's that cross-lateral stimulation. That's why I liked it when I was an ADD boy. That's why I like it as a Parkinson's gentleman. That I just I I literally cannot ride my bike and feel happy.
2: Yeah, and I'm that's how I am with running. I I love to. I that's my joy. Let me go out on a run, put my um, AirPods in, and just listen to my music.
0: She marathons. She's very humble.
2: Well, half marathons now. I don't do fulls anymore, but um, I do. I just, I let me just go run. Uh, definitely brings me joy.
1: Well, you are the second marathon runner we've had on. So I had Lisa Rogers the first season. Yes. yes. I was yeah. going through your, um, <laughs> I, I
2: joined your group uh, yesterday. And so I was going through them. I was like, oh, marathon runners.
1: Yep. <laughs> yes, yeah. So. Oh, I love to run and I actually ride a stationary bike. I was telling uh Whitney before we started that I had an injury in last January, almost a year ago, exactly to the date, and I wasn't able to run anymore. And that's how I release all my stress. <laughs> and I'm I'm just not I'm I'm really not easy to be around if I haven't exercised. And so I was like, what are we gonna do? And so we bought a stationary bike and I have ridden over two thousand two hundred miles on that bike. <laughs> since last wow. year. <laughs> well, actually we got it in wow. February. So since Valentine's day, because I just, I need that, you know? So I relate to what you're both saying. I, I just,
0: we all need our releases.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure.
0: Thank you so much for having us, Kate.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for creating this fantastic book here. Patterns of power. I'm so thrilled to have it in my hands. And I just do want to give a shout out to Melissa Stewart, because She was the one who said to me, you need to have Jeff Anderson on your podcast. And I was like, who is Jeff Anderson? And then at the same time, like right before she had told me that, I was feeling at unease about the fact that I wasn't teaching grammar to my kids because I just didn't know. Like I was tired of doing worksheets. I just didn't really know what to do about it. I didn't want to do daily orally language. And I was like, huh, who's Jeff Anderson? And then this book came up and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Wow. This Melissa, is exactly what I've been looking for.
0: Melissa Stewart is a wonderful person, all things Love nonfiction. Her. I tell you what. Mm-hmm.
2: She yeah, is. She's definitely one of my favorite um, writers, both professional and um, kidlit. lit. So. Yeah,
1: no, she's incredible. She's just an amazing person and she gives so much to the kidlit world.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: for sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So, All right. Well, okay. I hope you both have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Bye. You. you take right. care. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Chalk and Ink. It's homework time. Newbery Honor winner, Vera Hiranandani, will be joining us next episode. I highly recommend all of her books. If you only have time to read one of her books before February 4th, be sure to check out How to Find What You're Not Looking For. Stenhouse Publishers generously donated a copy of Patterns of Power or Patterns of Wonder to a lucky podcast listener. There are several ways to enter. One, tweet or retweet this episode and be sure to tag Jeff, Whitney, and me. Two, go to slash podcast and make a comment on this episode's post. Three, make a comment about the episode on our Chalk and Ink Facebook page. And four, become a Chalk and Patreon supporter. In order to enter the giveaway, these actions must be completed by midnight on Friday, January 28th. The winner will be announced on Friday, February 4th on the podcast as well as on Twitter and on our Facebook page. Please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Reviews are a gift for me and for others because reviews help people discover this podcast. Finally, I want to give a shout out to Sarah Brannan, for Chalk and Ink's podcast art. Sarah's latest book, Uncle Bobby's Wedding, earned a starred review from Kirkus. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.